Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 183. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 119 through 122 and follow with some thoughts about a woman's voice. Psalm 119 is the mother of all psalms, the mother of all chapters, the Melchizedek of the Tanakh. It's 176 verses long. And it's an acrostic, so each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet don't just get a half or a full line, as in previous acrostic psalms, they get each get eight verses. And each verse in each stanza begins with the letter in question. Eight is a significant number in this chapter. The poet also deploys eight synonyms when describing the Torah. This psalm is long and dramatic and features three characters, a person who one might say stands in for all of humanity or perhaps as a proxy for the poet, God and the Torah, and nominated for best supporting actor, the haters. One can already guess how the story plays out. Our hero, the person, pledges undying love to the Torah, even though it is hard and challenging. The Torah, for him, is not only an end in itself, but a source of inspiration and strength. And for this reason, the person turns to God and asks for assistance in both departments, keeping the Torah's commandments, which he loves passionately, and facing down the haters, whom he hates with as passionate a hate as those who try to trip him up and keep him down. Psalm 120 is the first of 15 psalms that begin with Shir HaMa'alot, a song of ascents. One can almost picture this psalm being recited or sung as one ascends up the stairs to the temple compound in Jerusalem. For the poet has reason to ascend and offer thanks in the temple because his prayer has been answered. He was ensnared by, quote, lying lips from a tongue of deceit, but God saved him. Sounds like a lot of folks came at him in his mentions. Psalm 121 is panoramic in its scope with another song of ascents. This time the poet looks up to the mountains, quote, from where will my help come? My help is from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. He does not let your foot stumble. Your guard does not slumber. Psalm 122 is the third song of ascents, this time capturing the high spirits among the pilgrims who say, quote, let us go to the house of the Lord, which builds to an even greater level of excitement as they arrive at the gates of the city, quote, for there the thrones of judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for Jerusalem's wheel. May your lovers rest tranquil. And on that exuberant note, here endeth the lesson. It all started with a single line in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 14, quote, O my dove, in the cranny of the rocks, hidden by the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is comely. Now, we'll get into this in greater detail when we look at Song of Songs and the centuries of hot takes about whether the eroticism in the text is to be read literally or figuratively, but for the rabbis of the Talmud, quotes from Song of Songs were marshaled in a variety of contexts, some of them unsurprisingly sexual. In what would pass today as an absurd and somewhat off-color discussion, rabbis of the Talmud attempted to define nudity. And when I say nudity, what I mean is to say female nudity, because, you know, male nudity might be problematic in some context, but female nudity is problematic in like every context. 
Tractate Brachot, folio page 24a. Rabbi Yitzchak states, an exposed handbreadth in a woman constitutes nakedness. Rav Sheshit goes one step further, quote, anyone who gazes upon a woman's little finger, it is as if he gazed upon her genitals. You're kidding me! Rav Chista says, even a woman's exposed leg is nakedness. And then Shmuel pipes in, quote, a woman's voice is nakedness. Kol be'isha erva. Now, for the more Puritan among us, a conversation about what constitutes nudity, and when I say nudity, I usually, you know, female nudity, right? Stipulated. It has its place because we don't want to expose men to any more temptation than they're already dealing with. Well, baby, me so horny. And perhaps I could understand attempts to obscure women's bodies from male sight, but a woman's voice? And let's be clear, it's a gloss to say that Shmuel was referring to a woman's singing voice. If you look up the word Shmuel uses, kol, in Jastro's Dictionary of the Talmud, nowhere in the definition does it refer to singing. It clearly states, quote, voice, call, sound, and then proceeds to list some examples in context where the word appears. The closest example comes from Genesis Rabbah with the phrase kola holech, a woman's voice is penetrating. Although under the entry of erva, genitals, Jastro cites Shmuel and translate it as a woman's singing voice. And I gotta say that here's probably a good example of why satire is dangerous. <laughs> Very nice. Because I can't help but feel that perhaps Shmuel was taking the piss here. By pointing out the absurdity of the whole conversation, the puritanical one-upmanship, a leg, too much. Gotta be like a handbreadth of flesh. A handbreadth? Too much. A single finger. A single finger? You must be joking. It's a woman's voice that's so outrageous, so obscene, so distracting, that hearing it is tantamount to seeing her intimate parts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, I guess the joke's on us because folks took Shmuel literally either way. And for the next like 1700 plus years, traditional male-centered Judaism not only hid women behind curtains, veils, long skirts, you know, in Photoshop, women would not be heard either. Which begs the question, if this rule applied during the time of the poet and his Song of Ascents, would pilgrims burst into male-only song when they caught sight of Jerusalem's gates? Did this rule apply when the Jews emerged from the parted Reed Sea, the Pharaoh's chariots drowned in their wake? I don't think so. The account of the Song of the Sea doesn't mention some kind of separation between men and women. Moshe led B'nai Yisrael. Does that mean only the men? And then, quote, Miriam chanted for them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and driver, he hath hurled them into the sea. No mention of her being hidden behind a curtain or silenced because hearing her voice was like seeing her genitalia. So it's particularly galling when periodically chazanim and cantors come together to record a psalm or another piece of music. These efforts are especially popular in a time of physical distancing where we can't gather to hear music and musicians can't gather to play it, so we respond creatively via Zoom. Individuals record their parts separately and send them to a producer who carefully stitches it all together in beautiful concert. In the early weeks of the quarantine, my feed was inundated with such efforts. One that stood out in particular was the Thelma Yellen High School Choir and Orchestra, who using their smartphones in their bedrooms performed Mendelssohn's Psalm 42. I've included a link 
on our Anchor page at anchor.fm forward slash Tanakhcast. This week, my feed was all about Avinu Shabashamayim, Our Father in Heaven, a special musical collaboration in honor of Israel's 72nd Independence Day. Participating were 19 cantors from around the world, each recording their part at home, etc., etc. There are many cantors from North America, Israel, and Europe. Not one of the cantors was female. And one of the reasons I'm acutely sensitive to this is because this was pointed out to me time and again by my favorite cantor. In fact, she's written extensively about this phenomenon, and I'll link to one of her older pieces in the forward about this very subject. Now, had this Avinu Shabbat Shemaim effort been an exclusively Orthodox Union collab or sponsored by the chief rabbinate of Israel... I would have said, well, you know, traditional Jews have many values, values that to them even ascend to the level of the kadosh, the sacred. Gender equality is not one of them. Traditional Judaism, despite all of its attempts to sugarcoat its patriarchal male-centeredness, is patriarchal and male-centered. They should just own it. Say the silent out loud. Take off the mask. It's more honest. So when Orthodox Chazanim gather to sing, I'm not surprised that they exclude women. I don't condone it. I don't participate. But I get it. The decision aligns with values. Fine. But what about when the movements in Judaism that tout gender equality as one of their core values? What about that? The Reform Movement ordained its first female rabbi, Regina Jonas, in 1935. Sally Presand was ordained in 1972. Reconstructing Judaism ordained Sandy Eisenberg Sasso in 1976. And Amy Eilberg became the first female rabbi in conservative Judaism in 1985. Julie Rosenwald served as cantor soprano in San Francisco's Temple Emanuel from 1884 until 1893. Barbara Ostfeld became the Reform Movement's first ordained female cantor in 1975. Erica Lippitz and Marla Rosenfeld Barragel became the first female cantors in conservative Judaism in 1987, but the Cantors Assembly, that movement's professional organization, did not admit women until 1990. It would be unheard of for a reform or conservative collaboration, or any public event for that matter, to so consciously exclude women from participation. So one would think that when the invitation arrives asking male reform and conservative cantors to join with their orthodox counterparts to sing Avinu Shabbat Shemaim, the appropriate response would be, thank you, but no, we understand that y'all value the patriarchy and all that, but that doesn't bind us, and frankly, it's hurtful to our colleagues. So thank you for the nice invite, but pass. (laughs) You serious? And the thing is, the singing wasn't even done together, it was done at home. So the offending female voice wouldn't even be heard by the Orthodox Chazanim. So it's like it doesn't even count. It's like it didn't even happen. Like when the ultra-Orthodox press ran that photo of the Obama situation room, you know, when they were awaiting news about bin Laden's execution and Hillary Clinton was like conveniently photoshopped out. And the thing is, it's not the first time that male reform and conservative cantors participate in cantorial events that include orthodox cantors to the exclusion of women. In pre-COVID times, such a thing was regular. It was a common occurrence. So what's the deal with that? 
I'm glad to say, though, that since the, that first effort of the all-male crew, another group of cantors got together, reform, conservative, and orthodox men and women, and recorded another version of the Venus Shabbat Shemaim. To that, I will happily link on the Anchor FM page, so good on them. And incidentally, when you watch and listen to it, nothing terrible will happen to you. It didn't, nothing terrible happened to all the participants. No one, you know, got smitten. The earth didn't open up its mouth and swallow anybody up. You know, it, in other words, it was a lovely listen and you should share it widely. If you're not inundated with table readings from the nanny or kitchen concerts from Nova Scotia or cast and crew reunions from the Goonies or brand new episodes of Parks and Recreation. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 184, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 123 through 126.